welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, January 7th, 2024. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses, is now available wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Digging out from that storm, are you, Peter? You know? <laughs> Everybody, you did you run out and get tons of milk and bread and toilet paper? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> you know, just in case. I, I really did believe it was just going to be rain. Um, but uh, you never know. Never know. Yeah, I was uh, before we started recording, I was telling Peter that I was hoping that there was going to be a storm so that uh, so that some extra Sweeney Todd. Uh, Sweeney Todd or Merrily We Roll Along tickets would come up so we could uh, see the last of Josh Groban or see the first of uh, of Merrily. But alas, there, this this storm was not a storm to be had this week, perhaps uh, later on the coming weeks. Yes, And uh, I'll be able to finally see Merrily. <laughs> so also with this is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello, and... Um... Uh, in reference to Sweeney Todd, I had not planned on this being my opening, but I'm just now reading uh, of the death of Sarah Rice. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah. I saw that this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Colby posted, um, devastated. We've just lost Sarah Rice, the incomparable star of Broadway and Cabaret and a wonderful friend. Of course, the original Joanna in Sweeney Todd. Uh, I just can't get my mind to register this sudden unexpected loss. Apparently she was fighting cancer. I'm so grateful to have known and worked with this exceptional talent and lady. This is her stopping the show singing Leocadia in other lives. And then he included a a, a link to that. So I, that's really sad. I, I got to interview her once or twice and, met her and saw her in various shows over the years, including um, she was Marion in The Music Man at uh, Equity Library Theater years ago. Wow. Uh, so, and of yeah. course, Joanna. Um, so um, that's very um, sad to hear. Yeah, yeah. She used to correspond with me quite a bit. So I, I, I did hear a rumor that she wasn't well, but I didn't realize it was that bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was uh, just this morning. I saw that on Facebook as well from a number of uh, a number of folks. Uh, very sad. So, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, first up in our review section, Peter, you got a chance to see. Here we are. So, uh, tell us about this uh, this new musical. Is it a new musical? <laughs> it isn't, it isn't, uh, as yeah. many have already heard. Uh, there's very little music in the second act, which, by the way, doesn't turn out to be awkward. It almost seems like there should be no music in the second act, uh, considering what's going on here. All right, let's start at the very beginning. Mm. Um, Louis Bunuel's uh, movies, um, The Exterminating Angel in 1962, and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie in 1972. 
have been linked together. Now, what was really great is that David Ives decided, and Sean Tom too, I imagine, decided that there was no reason why the people in the first picture couldn't be the people in the second picture too. So we, uh, while Bunuel used completely different casts, I don't just mean actors, but I mean characters. Um, we have the same characters here um, in the first act and in the second act. Now there is a tiny flaw uh, considering what's going on here that, um, that it takes place in the present and it takes place in America. What's the problem? Well, in the original movie, um, um, Discreet Charm comes first, even though it's the 72 versus 62. In the original movie, we're in France, and what happens is a, a group of people show up for dinner at a house, and indeed, they've chosen the wrong night. But frankly, we never get to know who's correct there about uh, whether they have the right night or the wrong night. But um, <laughs> we tend to believe that given that two separate couples uh, showed up uh, claiming tonight's the night, that they were correct and the hosts were wrong. But who knows? Anyway, now, the thing is, uh, the the would-be hosts, uh, we have nothing in the house. I mean, we'll just have to go out. Well, since we're in America, you'd think they call out for food and uh, have takeout food delivered. So in a way, that's a tiny flaw. Um, but anyway, they decide to go out. Okay, fine. So they go out. And uh, surrealism is, of course, exactly what Woodwell is all about. Um, because There's plenty of it in both of those pictures. And that's retained here because they go to Cafe Everything. And Cafe Everything has nothing. I mean, no matter what they order, nothing. Nothing. Not even water i mean so uh that's a, a bit bizarre um what what's going on here more than anything else we're talking about people who are very very wealthy um who haven't got a care in the world until of course they run into all these problems and the the implication seems to be at least to me that indeed if you the rich and powerful people were put in situations where they have no control they would fall apart completely because that's <laughs> what happens at both shows um in the exterminating angels section what happens is they um go to a, a a room and they can't get out there's no reason given why they cannot get out but when they get to the door frames they just cannot leave they don't have the ability to do that. And what would happen if all these rich people were together and they had to be in a room and the room doesn't include a bathroom. So that's a problem as well. And David Ives makes a bit more of that than um, is in the original movie. Uh, granted, I saw the original Exterminating Angel some months ago on TCM. Uh, and Discreet Charm, I did watch this week when I uh, found out I was going to be attending. Here we are. So, all right. Well, um, yeah, it's, it's ironic that in previous, in the most recent Sondheim shows, I do believe, I could be wrong, but I do believe that he gets first billing. You know, Musical Links by Stephen Sondheim, book by James Lapine or John Weidman or what have you. Here, David Ives gets top billing. And <laughs> that may be because Sondheim is no longer with us and he was able to negotiate that. I don't know. But a case can be made that David Ives has done the heavy lifting here because, as you've heard, there's virtually no music in the second act. There's an opening number. Now, Sondheim, I know in previous shows, has said that he worked sequentially. That, um, indeed, when he was writing Sweeney Todd, Attend the Tale of Sweeney Todd was the first number he did, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's entirely possible that, indeed, he was going sequentially on this show and did plan to do more songs in the second act, but that's as far as he got. Um, in a way, 
it all depends how you look at this. You can look at this as, in a strange way, a distillation of Sondheim's greatest hits. There are times when you hear little wisps of songs here and there. Um, it's, in a strange way, a derivative score of songs that he has written before. You will be reminded, there's, there's a few measures that seem to be exactly from Roadshow, uh, exactly, um, same exact same melody and, and um, mm. tempo, et cetera, et cetera. So um, in a way, you almost feel like if you saw the musical of musicals, the musical, that's what it was called, the musical of musical, the musical, um, by Eric Rockwell, who was magnificent at aping um, Jerry Herman, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Cantor and Ebb, Rogers and Hammerstein, and even Marvin Hamlish, um, only one. He did, he did the, a, a parody of the song One called Done. And frankly, I believe it's better than one. I think it's a, a so, but anyway, Eric Rockwell, um, was able to ape the style of uh, these composers brilliantly. And in a way, you almost feel like it's Eric Rockwell who's written this, um, because <laughs> it really does sound like a parody at times. So you can look at it as if to say, oh, sometimes repeating himself. Oh, these are sometimes greatest hits. Or, you know, just enjoy the fact that you are hearing some sometime, um, I wish I could find a better word at the moment than regurgitated, but that's what I'll use. Lyrics, um, certainly uh, very deft. I love the lyric about um, underpaid teachers and overpaid actors. I wonder what the actors think about that. Which brings us to the actors. And indeed, it's very interesting to me that so many of these parts are tiny. And yet, obviously, there were people who said, I want to be in Sondheim's last show. For example, David Hyde Pierce, certainly a, a leading man, a Tony winner, um, very famous. Um, everybody knows who he is. Um, he's the only one who got entrance applause. But granted, he came in very late in the first act. The first act is half over by the time he makes his first appearance. Um, seemingly as a bishop, he's dressed as a bishop. He's referred to as a bishop by the other people. <laughs> but then he's only a priest. Um, I, I'll put quotation marks around the word only. But anyway, um, and we find out that um, he has, he wishes he had done other things with his life, that he wishes he had um, gone into other occupations. Um, he also seems to have a fetish for women's shoes, but that's another story entirely. But um, he is identified as a bishop in the actual uh, playbill. So, uh, but pretty soon after, only one reference to a bishop, and then it's all priest. But anyway, um, there he is. One would think that David Hyde Pierce would say, I'm not going to be in a show where I don't show up until a half hour into the first act. <laughs> um, but no, he did want it. Tracy Bennett. Tracy Bennett, who um, is a, certainly an accomplished woman who gave one of the most controversial performances in the history of Broadway, as far as I'm concerned. Um, many loved her Judy Garland in, in End of the Rainbow. Many hated her Judy Garland in End of the Rainbow. But she she virtually has nothing to do. She's she's a maid. Um, and that's also true of Dennis O'Hare, who has more to do. He's a butler, um, a, a waiter, etc. Uh, he has more to do. And he has a very nice speech in the second act, because indeed, when all these rich people are in terrible trouble and don't know why they can't leave the room and um and where's the bathroom etc cetera, etc cetera. boy you find out what's really on 
an employee's mind, a servant's mind, when he when he essentially has the upper hand. He lets um, his feelings be known. There's a revolutionary in the show too, uh, Michaela Diamond, who we certainly loved in Parade. Um, is is I I don't believe that this character um, shows up in the movies, but um, she is she is a revolutionary. She hates all these rich people, even though she's the uh, sister of one of the rich people, and that's why she was uh, there, but um, hates them, has utter contempt for them, and yet um, meets uh, a soldier, uh, nicely played by Jin Ha, who, by the way, um, obviously gets the most from his health uh, club membership, because I am telling you, there was one point where he has to do several several push-ups and i'm telling you he does them effortlessly so um it may be a strange thing to mention in a performance but nevertheless it's pretty impressive to watch this guy do one after the other after the other they have a moment by the way where they um sing a held note for a long long time you might say oh god we've we hear that all the time the held note and the people screaming and yelling halfway through when they say it's it's done very differently even there there's a, a slight difference so um so but anyway um the real power broker here is our, our leo brink bobby Cannavale, um who has a nice gravelly voice um and it serves the character very well and um to me the real standout of the show rachel bay jones um as his wife uh wonderfully fetching um really has um not very much uh brain power there's a very funny thing involving cloning she's having her clone dogs cloned why is she having her dogs cloned like you know when you have a house in the country it's such a pain bringing (laughs) the dogs to the other place so this way when you get to the other your country house the dogs are already there you know and um, i think that's uh, very funny um so i i will say that many people may feel that they went to the theater on the wrong night because um <laughs> it is such an odd show sean logan one of our great brain teaser answerers said to me linda will not be there for the second act i'm telling you that right <laughs> now <laughs> yes she was yes she was she did say that she enjoyed about 25 percent of it but she did stay so um so that was kind of interesting well but i'll tell you this if you thought anyone can whistles cookies were crackers. Wait till you see these people. You'll also understand why Square One was one of the show's previous titles, because that expression comes up quite a bit. Quite a bit. So, um, so uh, it, it's certainly um, worth seeing. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, any it would have to be worth seeing, but I mean, once you're there and sitting in the shed, um, and by the way, get there early. You know, the shed's a very difficult place to maneuver. You have to take a, a million escalators to get there. But I will say once you're in your seat, oh, the seats are the most comfortable in the city. But anyway, just as Tennessee Williams collected a lot of his characters in his play Vieux Carré, um, it almost seems like you're seeing a lot of uh, former characters from um, from uh, Sondheim musicals. I mean, uh, Michaela Diamond and uh, Jin Ha playing the soldier have a little Tony and Maria in them. Uh, so, um, but uh, another thing that's very odd to me is that um, in the original play, people get in their cars mm-hmm. and uh, go to the restaurant. 
Um, here they all seem to get in the same car. It must be an SUV. I mean, there was no car, by the way. That <laughs> there's no little night music moment. Um, they they just seem to be walking, and we're told that they're in a car. Um, so uh, the first act is a white box and not much more. You might uh, say, "Where's the scenery?" It comes in the second act when you get into the handsome drawing rooms, and um, so uh, there's a moment that um, that's very reminiscent of candide um oh happy we where two people talk about what their values are and um what they expect from a relationship and they're completely at odds with each other they don't realize it and one has to wonder uh would sondheim have musicalized this if he had the time um uh, or would he have felt, no, I can't musicalize that because um, Leonard Bernstein and Richard Wilbur uh, already <laughs> covered that ground and covered it very well. Um, so I don't know. Uh, that, that was something that um, really um, uh, intrigued me. Um, uh, Joe Mantello has done a wonderful job in directing, except I do think it isn't very clear in the second act that these people can't leave the room. They come to the lip of the stage and they stop. I don't, I, I wish that were a little clearer. I think maybe his intention was to say, um, I'm going to, I'm going to keep you guessing for a few minutes. And um, after a while, let you have the chance to put two, two and two together that they can't leave the room. If so, fine. I understand. Oh, there's also a moment, of course, needless to say, where everybody's essentially saying it's your fault. Um, and there's also a very reminiscent um, moment at the end of the show, um, uh, this, uh, the witch and into the woods. So um, finally, uh, there's, uh, we've all heard the expression appearance versus reality. Well, let me say that you've never heard two words follow appearance versus reality as you hear in uh, in this show. So, um, uh, certainly, certainly well worth attending. Totally satisfying by no means, but <laughs> a lot better than you may have heard. I will say this. The people I know who really seem to be in musical theater uh, and care about musical theater and have followed musical theater have genuinely enjoyed it. Uh, people who um, who come to it from a different um, vantage point haven't liked it nearly as much, and I fully understand why. But if you've done the homework all these years, uh, you, you certainly will see where you are pleased and where you are not. And again, let us remember, Comedy Tonight, I'm Still Here, it would have been wonderful being alive. All those songs were written after the first performance of mm. the show, whether they'd mm. be out of town or here. The point is that um, children in art. Um, so um, uh, I believe very apropos to this week, um, send in the clowns. Said in the Clowns was definitely in the first performance in Boston, but um, it did come late in the rehearsal Oh, very, period. yeah, very But late. it was definitely, I was there January 20th, 1973. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, uh, every human being I knew who cared about Broadway was there. After Company and Follies, who the hell could wait for a second performance of Sondheim? Anyway, um, but the, my point is, a lot of his greatest songs were written um, after the show opened, or uh, as Michael is saying here, um, during late in rehearsal period. So who knows what would have happened had he had the time? Who knows? We might have gotten some songs as brilliant as they, and maybe it would have been wonderful uh, to have heard them. Uh, so, um, but uh, if you can get a ticket, 
Uh, and Lord knows it's not easy. If you can get a ticket and you do care about musical theater, uh, not just for bragging rights, you know, I saw <laughs> here we are. No, it's it's definitely worth seeing for a, a, a lot of um, assets. And frankly, David Ives comes off very, very well in this show. I um, for what it's worth, I, I don't fit into that category you said earlier of about how people who really love and adore musical theater tend to love it because I, I did not. But as I've said before, I think the main reason for that is I've never really responded to theater of the absurd um, uh-huh. in, gener- uh-huh. in general. And I and I guess that's a good word, a good description of this show. Um, uh, yeah, that's fair. I, I was talking to Juliet Green the other day about the time I was in Dusseldorf and I went to see I'm getting my act together and taking it on the road at a repertory theater. When I got there that night, it was the bald soprano. Um, oh, yeah. The, the yeah. actress had got hurt. And so as a result, they had to quickly put on the bald soprano, which I did not know. So imagine seeing Theater of the Absurd in German. I mean, boy, was I confused. So, yes, um, I know where you're coming from, Michael, with Theater of the Absurd. And uh, here's an interesting thing. Uh, somebody mentioned this online the other night, and I had noticed it just the other day when re-listening for the umpteenth time to the original Broadway cast recording of Merrily We Roll Along. There's that wonderful little uh, foreshadowing, if that's the word for it, uh, in opening doors, they sing... Um, I'm not sure what the first part of the lyric is, uh, but uh, I think it's we're pounding the doors saying, here we are. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if ah. when they were choosing the title of this show, ah. because as Peter mentioned, it, it was not originally here we are. It was square one. I think there were other. I think it was going to be. Bonwell, yes. Yeah. yeah, 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 indeed. Yeah. So here we, you know, so it's kind of like. um a, a neat flashback to merrily we roll along and and the those three young people uh just looking ahead to their future and singing here mm. we are you know mm. 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 square one I, is really a, a more logical title for this show um uh, but anyway um they have the right to choose what they want so uh but um ha um uh, uh, I think it was Juliet Green who actually said, um, I don't think anybody's going to do this show um, ever again. Uh, I hope I'm not um, citing the wrong person here, but I think it was she. Uh, I have a feeling, if I had to guess what theater will be the next to do, here we are. I'm going to guess um, the <laughs> lyric stage in Boston or uh, speakeasies in Boston. Uh, I have a feeling uh, because I've seen a road show there and um, uh, uh, with one of them and um, they seem to be uh, very energetic and um, and really like to do uh, off the wall uh, choices. So I have a feeling there will be other productions of this show because people in the other parts of the country are going to be curious about it. They really are. So um so i don't think we've heard the last of here we are okay so uh that is here we are over at the shed it's playing for another couple of weeks and uh you can catch up with it if like peter said if you can get a ticket it's a hard ticket to get right now very comfortable seat so Mm. peter (laughs) do you ever have a problem that sometimes a seat is so comfortable that you sort of doze off (laughs) you know 
I know you guys don't you guys don't go to movie theaters much, but the trend these days for movie theaters oh, yeah, to have sure. really comfortable seats. Oh yeah, you know. And as the, <laughs> the line says in the Wizard of Oz, you know, forty winks doesn't seem like such a bad idea. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe I should be grateful that uh, so many theater seats are not um, are not so comfortable. I, w- I was talking the other day about the fact that um, whenever seats are really terrible, I try to mention it in a review, um, like the audience was on the edge of their folding chairs, um, <laughs> so, uh, to let people know, you know, it is just the show we're talking about. You got to be comfortable too and um a lot of places are sad to say not comfortable okay i'm gonna read into that new york theater workshop (laughs) (laughs) so michael you live in hell's kitchen don't you Mm, that's right yes you live in hell's kitchen yet you had to travel (laughs) all the way to a different neighborhood in manhattan to see hell's kitchen was the Hell's Kitchen that you saw similar to the Hell's Kitchen you live in? <laughs> well, no, because it's first of all the setting is uh, is uh, a couple of decades ago. So, <laughs> like West Side Story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all yeah, the so West Side Story I, I, is seventy years. <laughs> or 60 oh, I know, years I know, right? Know. And and uh, have we mentioned this? Um, this year is the eighty fifth anniversary of the Wizard of Oz. Mm. Mm, that's right. Yeah. And that's coming back to uh, theaters, by the way, Fathom Events at the end of this month for people who want to see it on the uh, on the big screen. Great. But uh, what I just saw was a, a story about another young girl um, called Allie uh, and based on uh, uh, loosely based on the biographical <laughs> uh, story of Alicia Keys who wrote the songs for this new show, Hell's Kitchen, which is currently playing at the public theater, but has been announced um, that it is moving to Broadway uh, fairly soon. And I, of course, I was very, very interested in this um, because I not only live in Hell's Kitchen, but I live in the same housing complex uh, that Alicia Keys grew up in, and which is almost like a, a... a third, well, uh, or whatever, um, a major character in this show. Uh, uh, it's very much about where she lives and who she meets here and who she meets in the in the environs. Um, I uh, have said many times on this podcast, I am a pop music ignoramus, mm-hmm. so I went into it, you know, almost completely cold. Uh, maybe having heard one or two of her songs in passing over the years, but never really having focused on them. And this is, um, uh, let's clarify, it is for the most part what you would call a jukebox musical. There are um, lots of songs in it, and apparently only four uh, are new, uh, newly written for this project. Um, uh, But the other ones, uh, many of our listeners will recognize the titles immediately uh so i think um uh, let me get cut to the chase this was a terrific disappointment for me because i thought it could have been so so good with just uh really not that much more work i think what happened here is um on the one hand uh we have to give alicia keys credit for 
going to uh well going to a director who would have seemed to be uh the kind of person to go to because it's someone who has had great experience and great success uh with new musicals and that director's name is Michael Greif and among the musicals with which he has had great success are Rent Next to Normal Great Gardens and Dear Evan Hansen but as i have also said um in the past although uh the, that record speaks for itself i personally have had major problems with all of those shows in terms of the the storytelling and the dramaturgy and as far as i'm concerned um a really good director uh you know that is within their purview and and it's part of their job if something is not working and just doesn't make sense uh it's part of their job to um to uh what's the word uh to um ber- to exhort uh to to urge the writers um to come up with something better i i i know that the the great directors of the past had reputations for being able to do that and that's why i mean that's that's obviously a very very important talent to be able to spot things that don't work and to say this has to be rethought and rewritten um and i'm sure that that's a major reason why all of those shows of the past that were headed by people like hal prince and jerome robbins and uh you know the the other real greats um why they were so successful and so and remain so beloved and so classic um this this one here uh the the general movement at the plot is is excellent and very compelling Allie lives in manhattan plaza with her mother and we're told from the beginning that Allie is i I guess you would say mixed race her father is black her mother is white uh her mother's name is jersey by the way at least that's what she's called in this uh show and uh she is kind of a wild child, Allie. Um, she likes boys. <laughs> she likes to hang out with her friends on the street. And um, she, uh, one of the people she meets is this street musician named Nuck, K-N-U-C-K. And she becomes very attracted to him and very aggressively pursues him. Um, and at first, he doesn't seem interested, but then he is. Uh, and that turns out to become an issue because uh although ali is 17 um which is not technically underage if i understand it correctly uh it's still a problem if the person that you're having sex with is older than a certain age um a certain number of years older than you i don't know if, if either of you guys are more conversing in in those no, laws like i said no yeah yeah uh, so apparently like in other words if you're 17 and you have sex with another 17 year old or maybe an 18 year old uh probably nothing's going to happen but if you do it with somebody who's 25 um you're that person is theoretically open to be you know charged with statutory rape um uh-huh. so, so we're that's talking about consenting yeah. children yeah, well, well, or yeah, but in this case, she's seventeen, mm-hmm. and Nuck, uh, I think we t- we are told is twenty five. So that becomes an issue for him and and for them, and blah 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 blah. Um, and then, uh, so that is a lot of the story. And in the midst of it, 
there's also uh we see Allie's musical coming of age, which the way it's portrayed in this show is happens um uh the the um catalyst is when she is in a, a room that actually exists here in Manhattan Plaza called the Ellington Room. That's kind of an all-purpose room used for meetings and parties. And and there is a piano, a permanent uh, grand piano in it. And one day she's there just hanging out to get away. And she hears someone playing. And it's this older woman named Miss Liza Jane, uh, played by Keisha Lewis in, um, in this show. Uh, and... Miss Liza Jane is a very, very colorful character and obviously a, a very talented and experienced musician. And she sort of takes Allie under her wing with, with a kind of a tough love approach and um, and sort of t- t- pretty much teaches her to play the piano and, and to form a, a love of music that then, you know, grows into uh what what eventually happened to alicia keys ali by the way is played by malaya joy moon and uh at the performance that i attended jersey uh ali's mom was played not by shoshana bean uh who normally does it who was out and that was a tremendous disappointment to me initially because i love shoshana bean but donna vivino uh, must say was absolutely uh, phenomenal. Yeah, I have no problem believing that. And and everyone um at intermission, everyone around me was saying how good she was. Uh so she should know that. Um mm-hmm. because really it uh, it's it's um it's a very good role and with some very difficult singing and she just absolutely aced it uh, and the acting as well uh really just 100%. So um that's the setup um one of the problems i had with the uh, with this show is that uh, similar to the new movie Maestro uh i mean i i don't have a problem with it uh with having Ali's relationship with Nuck as the kind of the focus or the framing device, but it just seemed like there was too much of that. And also maybe too many scenes of conflict with her mother uh, as compared with too few scenes about her, um, her music, uh, you know, her growing into being a wonderful uh musician and songwriter and singer uh i think if there had been just a few more scenes about that and a few fewer scenes about knock and the mother um then it would have been a a a much better show and that's one of the things that i would lay at michael greif's feet that he didn't notice that but then there are other um very very strange things in this show and you watch them and something strange happens and you think why did nobody notice this? Uh, especially not a director who's directed Rant Next to Normal, Grey Gardens, and Dear Evan Hansen. Um, for example, uh, Nuck uh, objects to the fact, uh, as we get to know him, that everyone sees him as a thug. Uh, that's his word that he uses, and yet he, uh, you know, he, that's not what he is at all. Um, uh, but yet, well, all right, if that's how you feel, Nuck, why are you wearing your pants pulled down to halfway down your thigh? Um, why are you presenting as the thing 
that you don't want people to see you at. Um, so that made zero sense to me. Uh, also, the first time Ali says hello to him, he he responds very coldly and almost angrily, uh, sort of like a thug. Uh, so he's he seems kind of hypocritical in um, wondering why people perceive him a certain way when that's the way he's presenting him. Um, another odd thing in the show is... Um, Ali's mother is, as I said before, she, she is white. Uh, and by the way, uh, it seemed to me, of course, you can't tell for sure, that Donna Vivino is one of only two uh, white or Caucasian actors in the entire show, uh, her and one person in the ensemble. So uh, that's how they did the diversity thing in this case. And in, in reality, uh, Manhattan Plaza is actually far, far more diverse than that. Uh, but um, I just thought it was very strange that whenever Jersey speaks in dialogue, um, she speaks uh, in uh, complete uh correct standard english but whenever she starts singing she resorts to she resorts to a kind of a street uh style of speech for example there's a song which i think must be new because i looked it up um and i couldn't find it um as a pre-existing song by alicia keys it's called 17 and jersey is singing about her daughter ali and she sings she's just 17 and her break and her brain just don't work. Now that may sound like a little thing, but she never talks like that. Uh -huh. She would never, if she was speaking the line, she would say her brain just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of the songs that she sings, uh, I guess many of the others, or at least some of the others are pre-existing songs. It's the same thing. It's street language coming out of a, a woman who just doesn't talk like that when she's speaking. So that was a kind of a disconnect for me. Um, Weird, uh, another Michael Greif, why were you not looking at this and why did you not fix this moment is uh, Jersey becomes very frustrated with her relationship with Allie because uh, they're really not getting along. She's uh, Jersey's trying to control Allie and keep her away from that boy, uh, that young man, and and just generally sit on her as far as discipline and Ali's rebelling. So uh, at one point in frustration, Jersey turns to um, Ali's dad, who is an absentee father. Uh, and she really begs him uh, to come and, and speak with Ali. Uh, and so he agrees to do so. And so he comes over and, uh, they're talking, uh, the two of them in the apartment, the mom and the dad. And he says at one point, um, he says, well, okay, you know, uh, maybe I'll stay for dinner and I'll, you know, I'll talk with Ali and we'll see what's what. And Jersey says, no, dinner is for family only. Now, what? <laughs> she just begged him to come <laughs> and talk mm. with her daughter. Why would she say something like that? Why would Christopher Diaz, who wrote the book, write that line in the first place? And why would Michael Greif say, well, that doesn't make any sense, Christopher. Uh, we'll, have, we'll need to rewrite there. Uh, and oh, and then uh, one more thing, because I feel like I'm going on. Uh, <laughs> Jersey um, uh, then becomes angry with uh, the dad about something. Uh, oh, uh, because it turns out that he's... Uh, He's going to take a job and going to be out of town for a while, and and she doesn't think that's a good thing. So she goes and confronts him at his job interview. 
while he's talking with these other musicians who are, you know, talking about hiring him for this gig. And I thought that was so beyond reality that I just completely shut down at that point. Um, what else? Um, the choreography by Camille A. Brown, I thought was very good, but uh, starts to become a little repetitious after a while. And while I appreciate the fact that um, the ensemble, uh, the ensemble is in a, a great many of the numbers and it does help, help help give this sense of community of, you know, Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan Plaza community, but it also just got to seem a little, a little repetitious and a little too much. So I think there could have been some editing there in those terms. And, um, and finally, uh, I would say that, some of the songs fit in very well with the plot that has been written around these songs by Christopher Diaz. And some of them absolutely do not. There was one song that um, the mother sings uh, in reference to Ali, which so clearly sounded like it was originally supposed to be a song about romantic love. And they tried to rejigger it into a song about motherly love, maternal love, and it did not work at all. Um, so I think that, um, uh, interestingly, in, in Jesse Green's review for the New York Times, he felt, uh, I recall him saying, he felt that the first act was absolutely perfect, and then the second act fell apart. I, I didn't think that. I thought there were problems all the way through, and there were uh, sections of the show that worked really, really well, and others that absolutely did not. But again, it seems to me that much of it would be quite easily fixable and i and i'm sorry to say that i think that uh this book writer and director who they hired were not the best people for the job okay so that's uh hell's kitchen at the public theater uh it's playing through january 14th and uh we're thinking we'll be seeing broadway productions of this um it has, it has been announced yeah. Um, even if you go um, to 44th Street, you will see the electronic marquee that was recently put up over the Schubert Theater is uh, certainly promoting it. So, uh, Peter, Michael, my question for you is, uh, what are all the musicals about various neighborhoods in Manhattan? We have In the Heights. <laughs> we have Hell's Kitchen. What else do we have? You know, anything else there? Is there a Turtle Bay out there happening? Is there? Uh... That one's coming along slowly. <laughs> has, there ever been a sh- has there ever been a show called Times Square? I don't mm. think so. There was a Times Square theater. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, Soho, Tribeca, you know. Uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's doesn't quite capture it. Yeah. But it never quite captured anything. Uh, no, no, no. So, all right. Um, but there is going to be a smash workshop, we hear. Finally, you know, oh, right. after yes. so many years and years and years of talking about smash going to be coming to Broadway. Uh, we hear that this spring there's going to be uh, uh, a pre-Broadway smash workshop. Uh, do you guys um, do you guys think anything about that? Uh, um, <laughs> perfectly frank, um, I saw very few of the TV episodes. Um, it didn't hold me very much, so mm. uh, so I I'm I'm not the best person to ask about this. Um, I 
do believe in the talent, certainly, of uh, Mark and Scott. So, um, and I do recall that they did a clever, if obvious, thing with Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend um, as the final line in the song about uh, baseball. But um, I, I, it's so long ago, and I, I can't say that I really remember anything about the series beyond that. Mm. Michael, I, you, uh, did you watch it? I remember I stopped watching. I don't remember if it was the first or the second episode where uh, this uh, young woman has auditioned for a show and it's um it's late one night and she's in bed with her boyfriend and she gets a call from the director to come meet her in his hotel room uh-huh. or his apartment and she goes mm-hmm. and and they all and they all thought that well you know there's nothing wrong with that uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> i stopped watching it as soon as michael riedel showed up isn't that interesting? All of us, did, it, the three of us, we didn't continue. Isn't that something? Uh, it was, it, it, you know, it. it I, I think that it's like when lawyers watch law yes. television ah, shows yes. and yeah, yeah, and yeah. medical people watch uh, medical dramas uh, and they're like, oh, this is so, this is yeah, so yeah. not right, right? Yeah, know? yeah. I had so. a friend who went to uh, um, the high school of the performing arts, and they apparently everyone who went there hated the movie of fame. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm like, it's so good. It's so good. Uh-huh. They're like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Debbie Schrager, De- Debbie Schrager is the exception to the rule because she's a lawyer and she loved L.A. law. Oh, good. But <laughs> that Corbin Burnson, you know, uh, Harry Hamlin. and <laughs> yeah, What's not to love? <laughs> Uh, Tony Janicki brings up in our chat room that Brooklyn was a musical, of course. Uh, Brooklyn, yes. I I liked Brooklyn when it was small. I didn't like it when it... But Brooklyn was the name of a character, for what it's worth. Yeah, the girl. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Well, you know, that that movie about Dumbo that had nothing to do with (laughs) the bridge, right? (laughs) Hey, guys, it's snowing again. What can we... uh, Oh, is it? What can we... <laughs> say about that. Yeah, it is, it is. Michael, it doesn't count because you're like so high up in the air. You're like thousands <laughs> of feet high. By the time it gets down to the mere mortals, it's it's rain. It could be rain, you know? yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> it definitely could. snow right now, yeah. Yeah. I'm my window. Maybe day to try to snag a ticket to something. I mean it's not heavy, it's not a blizzard. No. Um, no, it certainly isn't. Uh, I tell you people from Long Island, it's not yeah. snowing here. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's yeah. not snowing on Long Island. Uh-huh. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, Alan Teasley brings up that, uh, you know, we had great introductions in Smash. Leslie Odom Jr., uh, yes. Leslie Odom Jr., Megan Hilty, Jeremy Jordan, Krista Rodriguez. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, I I don't doubt the talent in those shows. No, no, just no, as long, just as well as everybody's not going to say, you know, ER was a terrible medical show, but oh, that George Clooney, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know. No, we don't uh, doubt the talent in the show. We doubt no, the talent yeah. in the writing. Yeah, but that's what exactly. I doubt. Anyway. And Deb Schrager says the last season of Smash had great music in it. And again, again Peter started off by Scott and. Uh, Mark are very, very talented. Oh. So, you know, we love them. Oh, yeah. It was, it was just, uh, and maybe the art of television is lost on the three of us. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not so big on that. 
Perhaps. <laughs> we also have uh, news that um, Josh Groban and Anne Lee Ashford are wrapping up uh, next uh, Sunday, January 14th in Sweeney Todd. And uh, coming up is Aaron Tevet and Sutton Foster going to start in February through May. But uh, uh, Nicholas Christopher and, and Jenna DeWall are going to be covering from January 17th to February 8th. And many, many people have said that if you've seen Christopher and, and Jenna DeWall, they are amazing. Yes, so yes, if, in fact, uh, you are going to look for a different version of Sweeney, uh, those things are coming up. Uh, Michael, are you going to be going back to see them or are you going to be Jerry Orbacking too much to do that? Ah. Well, I... Uh... No, I certainly hope to. I, I also, I would love to try to buy a ticket, if possible, uh, to see Josh and Annalie again, uh, because I, I just, uh, I, I thought he sang it so beautifully that um, whatever other flaws there were in his performance, it, it, it almost didn't bother me at all. And also, for what it's worth, um, people who've seen it recently said uh, he has grown into the role in terms of being more menacing. And, uh-huh. and acting it more, uh, maybe more intensely and more fully. Uh, ironically enough, um, uh, looking for something to watch the other night, I pulled out The Tale of Sweeney Todd, a 1997 TV movie uh, directed by John Schlesinger. Ben Kingsley played Sweeney. Joanna Lumley was Mrs. Lovett. And when I saw in the credits Campbell Scott, and especially since it was 1997. Oh, he's playing Anthony. There is no Anthony. It's a very different take on the story. Mm. Now, granted, it doesn't have to be the Sweeney Todd that Christopher Bond wrote or the uh, Sondheim and um, Wheeler wrote. It doesn't have to be that. I know that this was uh, Sweeney Todd originally was based on something called The String of Pearls, which has nothing to do with Glenn Miller. But anyway, <laughs> the... Um, the real uh, story here is completely different um, from what we know. For one thing, uh, there's nothing about revenge. Sweeney is killing people for money. Uh, he, he's, there's a rich man he killed, and an insurance investigator, that's Campbell Scott, um, is on the case. He comes from America, and he's trying to find out what really happened. Um, there is a Tobias character. Uh, named Charlie, who indeed is um, uh, a mute, and uh, he isn't much help in um, in screaming out that s- strange things are going on here. And um, so very, very different. Um, indeed, Mrs. Lovett is using the bodies that um, Sweeney has killed to uh, make meat pies out of them, but there's nothing about revenge. And, you know, you really need that revenge element when it's just somebody who is killing just for money. That's a profound difference from somebody who's done 15 years for for a crime that he didn't commit at all and uh, was sent up the river um, totally unfairly. I mean, it's a very different situation. And I was very, very surprised that um, this even was written. Again, the writers had every right to do it, but um, I it wasn't at all what I was expecting. Needless to say, um, <laughs> considering how well I know uh, the musical. So um, it was a Showtime movie. Um, perhaps it's available on YouTube or whatever, but um, it's it's very surprising. Well, I should confess, um, uh, I one of the few times I got to 
interview Sondheim, uh, he scolded me because I <laughs> asked him, <laughs> because I asked him, um, now, the, the, this element of revenge in Sweeney Todd is was that present in any of the previous, uh, you know, versions of the story? And he's like, "You should do your research." Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that that was that was Christopher Bond. You should do your research. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, other things that we uh, should just mention quickly is that we had news this week that Sunset Boulevard, the West End production that's playing right now, starring Nicole Scherzinger, is going to hit Broadway in 2024, probably in the summer or the fall of 2024. Uh, Not to get it into this season, but it'll be in next season, the 2024-2025 season. Uh, uh, I'm delighted. Um, I'm I'm one of the few who really, really, really like Sunset Boulevard. Um, I know that's a minority report. I always enjoy seeing it, and I'm delighted it's coming back. I hope it's a genuine production as opposed to um, a concert version uh, that we really are going to see some scenery there. Um, and uh, but I'm I'm always up for seeing Sunset Boulevard. I think it's a terrific musical. You're going to see yeah. video. I don't know how much scenery you're going to see. Is that right? Uh, I didn't know that. Sort of a black box type of thing. Oh, yeah? Oh, all right. Well, it's got blood. Maybe you haven't heard, Peter. I guess I haven't. No, yeah, it's one of the, it's like, um, what what was the the show that um, Eva Eva Van Hove did? Um, Oh, uh, the network, network with people being filmed Uh like outside of the theater. I see. Okay, I'm still up for it. Um, I want to go. In fact, <laughs> Linda and I talked about going to London to see it, so I'm delighted that we don't have to do that. Well, as I've said before, that was the one Broadway show I ever booed. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I, I, know, I know that most people feel that way. I remember being uh, on a panel in Alaska with Shirley Knight, and the look she gave me when I said I like Sunset Boulevard is one I'll never forget. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> Michael, did you boo at the original Sunset or the revival of Sunset? The original at at the end, and and as I said, it, it wasn't that it was even the worst show that I've ever seen, but it was the worst show I'd ever seen by far that got any kind of acclaim. And everyone around me was standing up and screaming, and uh, and I was like, "What are you?" You know. So I tried to boo at a at a time um, when when it when I was showing that I wasn't booing the performers, uh-huh. but I was booing the writers. Uh-huh. <laughs> And the creators. Uh, so I don't. Anyway, you know, I've often said that car horns should have different sounds. Yes, uh, you know, mm. the car horns should be. You know, oh, excuse me, uh, be careful. As opposed to, will you get going? Well, maybe there should be a different tone for booze, meaning I'm booing the show and not the performers, or I'm booing well, the performers and not the show. That would be the great. French. The French whistle, don't they? Do they? I don't, don't know. That. Don't the French yes. whistle when yeah, when they're so. disenchanted with things? Oh, is that right? Wow. I think yeah. so, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Watch the French Open tennis. And ah, you hear, hear it very right, often when wrong, there's though. a when there's a, a call made by an umpire mm. uh, that they don't like, they whistle. Ah, how interesting. So I don't know if uh that'll catch on in theater, but uh <laughs> we also uh to wrap up this morning, uh stage and screen legend Glennis Johns has passed away. Yeah. Any uh quick thoughts, Peter? 
just that she was wonderful in night music, really terrific. And um, uh, I still remember the ooh at that first performance in Boston when indeed she uh, came out in that red dress, which after all is the most valuable costume in in Broadway history. Um, Annie, Dolly, (laughs) Molly Brown, (laughs) um, to a degree, um, Cassie and um, Nancy and Oliver. Um, But anyway, uh, she was splendid that first performance. I mean, she really had that character down pat and she made us really care about her in the best sense of the word. uh, And we really rooted for her to to be successful there. Uh, My late great friend, David Wolf, was assistant stage manager on um, A Little Night Music and said that she was just delightful and wonderful every step of the way. So that's nice to hear too. And a lot of material was thrown at her um, late in, um, in the process. So, uh, and she was up to the challenge. Michael, how about you? I regrettably did not see her in Night Music. Uh, I did not see that original production. Uh, I did see her on Broadway in The Circle in 1989. Um, with uh, a cast including Stuart Granger, Rex Harrison, uh, Patricia Connolly, and oh, look who was in it, Roma Downey. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I, I'm glad that I did get to see her on stage. Uh, somebody, our friend Josh Ellis um, posted a wonderful item. He posted a photo of Glynis with Keith McDermott, the actor, um, who uh, was in Equus at, at one point as the boy, but he was uh, supposed to star with Glynis in H- Harold and Maud on Broadway uh, before Glynis left and was replaced by Janet Gaynor. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's, but it's quite a hilarious uh, item that Josh posted. It's a very nice photo. And he says, uh, I fondly remember my press associate, David Lachey, taking portrait shots of Glynis Johnson, Keith McDermott, her Harold, before she exited Broadway's Harold and Maud and was replaced by Janet Gaynor. As David was about to take his first shot, Glynis said, hi. David said, hi. Glynis said, no, hi. David said, hi. <laughs> Glynis said, I said, hi. <laughs> David said hi, <laughs> and Glennis finally said, "Losing patience? No, I mean shoot your photos from higher up." <laughs> oh. and, so, and so he shot the photo from higher up, and we'll send that photo along and see if we can include it in the show notes. okay so that wraps it up for today before we get on to our brain teaser and our musical moments i want to remind everybody that you can you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com there's a subscriber link that way each and every time we have a new episode of this week on broadway it'll be automatically downloaded to apple Podcasts for you of course you don't have to listen to us an apple podcast there's many ways to get us one ways is uh patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Broadway Radio. You will get our podcasts early, be able to listen to us live uh, on Sunday mornings and support all the work that Broadway Radio does. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's brain teaser? (laughs) 
Two women known as Betty, both won Tonys for the same musical in the same year. Who were they and what was the musical? Well, Betty Comden wrote the book for the 1969-70 Tony-winning musical Applause, which won a Best Musical Tony for Lauren Bacall. Note that I said two women known as Betty for Lauren Bacall preferred to be known as Betty. Paul Whitty was the first to get it, followed by Steve Bell, Juliet Green, Sean Logan, Josh Israel, Tony Janicki, Deb Popple, Michael Van Duzer, John Petrakovic, Brigadude, David Robinson, Jack Lester, Jeff Hickman, Kathy Jones, Arthur Robinson, Alex Lauer. <clears throat> and, you know, I said to uh, Linda, you know what? I'm a little surprised that so many have answered the brain teaser this week. I thought it was going to be difficult. And she asked, what is it? And when I told her, she slowly blinked in a way to suggest boredom and said, applause. So anyway, <laughs> this one, I think, is a little tougher more convoluted in the 21st century the musical for which he composed the score won a tony for best revival of a musical i don't mean he wrote it in the 21st century i'm saying that the musical for which he composed the score won tony for best revival of a musical this century exactly 10 years earlier she appeared in a show that won a tony for best revival of a musical no she didn't win a tony for it but four years later, she did win for Best Featured Actress in a Musical. So she now has a Tony, while he has three. And what do these two have in common? His initials are an anagram of hers, and <laughs> vice versa. Who are they? Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's Musical Moments? Well, as of yet, a cast album for Hell's Kitchen does not exist, but uh, wanted to feature some music from that. So we have two uh, performances of two of the songs by Alicia Keys herself. Uh, the opener, uh, and both of these songs are included in the show. Uh, the opener is You Don't Know My Name, and the closer is Teenage Love Affair. Okay, so on behalf of Michael Bortantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.